0: For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and the local women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, she answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has opposed me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Good morning, peace be with you. My name is Timothy Jones, and I have the privilege of serving as one of your pastors here at Sojourn Midtown. Now, have you ever ended up in a group where you realized I am in this group, I am part of this group, but I don't belong in this group. Ever ended up, like I'm just in a spot where I don't really belong. Example of something that happened to me, because sometimes it's just awkward when that happens. I was uh, in Australia uh, teaching, and I was jet-lagged, and I went out to Hyde Park, this beautiful park in central uh, Sydney, and walked, just took a walk in the park to try to just get my mind cleared. So I go to this fountain uh, that's, that's there and just kind of standing there in a crowd of people. And when the crowd of people starts to move, I kind of start moving with them. And I'm just going along in there, enjoying my time there. And suddenly somebody pulls out a sign and people start chanting. And I realize, I am in the middle of a protest march. I did not mean to be in a protest march. I don't even know what I'm protesting, but I'm protesting something and I didn't even know that. I don't even know if protesting is legal in Australia. I don't know any of these things. So as quick as I could, I just made my way out of the group and went off because I realized I might be there, but I did not belong there in that place. But other times that happens to us and it's it's deeply painful. You may have a time in your life you remember that you went to school and you realize you didn't have the clothes to be able to fit in. It may be that you end up with a situation where you're at a family reunion and you realize you don't really even fit in your own family. It may be that you've been in a community group even and you got a group of people around you and they're talking about their kids' private schools and all the things they're doing and you don't even sure that you have the money to pay for your kids' medication for the next month. And you get this feeling inside of I may be here, but I don't belong here. Some of you may feel that way right now. You may be thinking, I'm here, I'm in this place, but if only the people around me knew what was going on in my heart, in my mind, if they knew what I said to my kids this morning on the way to church, then they would not think I belong here. I might be here, but I don't belong here. Well, here's the deal. If you have had that feeling, if you got that feeling right now, You are actually in good company because there's four women in the genealogy of Jesus. And these four women in the genealogy of Jesus, I believe that if any one of them had been told, you are going to be an ancestor of a savior king of the universe, that all four of these women would have said, I might be there in that list, but I don't belong in that list because all of these women had serious issues. They had terrible online dating profiles. None of them were people that anybody would naturally want. They were not Jewish. They were women to begin with in a culture where women did not typically appear in genealogies at all. And yet, do you realize that there is one person in all of human history who has had the capacity to choose his own genealogy, and that's Jesus. And he chose all four of these women to be part of his genealogy. And we're going to look this week at Ruth, who was a widow from the wrong side of the border. And you're going to see how God took a woman who did not belong and turned her into the ancestor of a king. Now it starts out as we read, during the time of the judges. Don't brush over that. Because the time of the judges was in Israel, a time in which it was a violent and vile time, sort of like the Israelite equivalent of the Wild West. And once in a while, things would get completely out of hand and there would be a judge kind of right into town like a sheriff and he would set things right. People would turn back, but then it would go back to the same cycles of vileness and violence again. And in the midst of this, there is a famine. And there is a family in the midst of the famine in the town of Bethlehem. Naomi and Elimelech. Naomi and Elimelech have two sons, Malon and Kilion. Now before you say, wow, we're having a child, Malon and Kilion. Those are some great names there. The two names mean sickly and frail, okay? This would be like naming your children nausea and gangrene, all right? This is a, they needed a baby name book, clearly. But probably what happened is these two children are born during the famine and their names express the realities of the times in which they are born. To this family, they held out in the drought as long as they could. But then finally, they left their ancestral lands and they went to the city or to the country, the area of Moab, Moab. Now, if your Bible had sound effects, you would push Moab and it would go dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun because this is an evil empire, okay? Nothing about Moab, nothing that begins in Moab ends well. If you go all the way back to the beginnings of Moab, what you find is Moab began when a guy named Lot, who was actually not worth a lot, he slept with his daughters and one of their children was named Moab. That's how Moab started. And then you get a point in the book of Numbers when the the men of Israel, many of them started to fall in love with women of the Moabites, 24,000 of them, and they were drawn into idolatry and God had them all killed. Nothing that goes to Moab ends well. These are the women that your mother warned you about in Moab. This is not a good thing. The women were viewed particularly in a low way from Moab. You Google Israelite vacation destinations, Moab never shows up in your search results, never. But here they are in Moab and Elimelech dies, but they have two sons. Now remember in this, that in their culture, your sons were your future, not simply in carrying on your line, which is certainly true, but they were your 401k. They were your social security. If you had no sons, you had no future. So perhaps since she still had sons, she thought it's it's still gonna be fine because they could raise up children to take care of us and they can take care of me. But then both of the sons married Moabite women. And then maybe Naomi still made the best of it. After all, they could raise up sons and maybe they could reclaim that family property in Bethlehem. But then 10 years pass and neither Malon's wife nor Kilion's wife has a child. The two women they married are both barren And then the sons die too. And every hope, every dream that Naomi has had is buried beneath the defiled dirt of Moab and she has nothing left. And the famine over in Bethlehem and that region finally ends far too late though for her to have any future. So finally, she returns to the land that she left with nothing and Orpah and Ruth, they start to follow her. And as Orpah and Ruth start to follow her, she turns around and says to them, look, I don't have any more sons for you. Go back to your home. Go back to your gods. Try to find a husband there. I have no sons to give you. Don't go with me. And Orpah turns back to the gods of her people, turns back to her family. But Ruth clings to Naomi. He clings, She clings to her. And she says, your God is my God. And may Yahweh, may, the, may God curse me if I ever turn back on you. She uses the personal name of God to refer to him and makes an oath, a covenant in the name of Israel's God that she will stay with Naomi. Ruth from Moab. She trusts Naomi's God even when Naomi can't. This is why we need community. Because there are times that I struggle to believe. There are times that I struggle to keep believing. And I hear from you, I see in you, and I hear the songs and I hear the scriptures, and I am able to say, yes, this is something we can believe in. And that happens to you as well. That's what's happening here. Even when when Naomi can't believe, Ruth does. And so here they roll into Bethlehem, battered and bitter. Naomi has no hope, no husband, nothing with her, but a refugee from the wrong side of the border. Bethlehem's a small town. It's one of those small towns, if you've ever lived in one, where nobody uses their signal lights because once you pull out of your driveway, everybody knows where you're going anyway. It's a small town. So we can imagine in our terms, you got them rolling into town in a beat up old Buick, and they roll into town and roll into the town square. And there's the women of the town start looking and say, isn't that Naomi? Hey, that's Naomi. She's back. It's been a long time. She's back. And who is that driving her car? And finally, as they go around the square, Naomi cranks down the window. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Naomi means pleasant. Mara means pleasant bitterness. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter because that's what's happened. Everything in my life has turned bitter for me and they go out and perhaps set up a tent on that plot of land where she and Elimelech had started, where their sons were born and now it's carpeted with brambles and thorns and broken dreams. And it says they arrive in verse 22, In the barley harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now you may think, why did they show up at the beginning of the barley harvest? Well, it's really important. Because you see, one of God's plans for his people was that during the times of harvest, that you did not harvest the sides and the corners of the field, but you left those for people who were prone or possible to be vulnerable and oppressed. The widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the poor, they could actually go into the fields and get food by going to the corners and the edges of the fields. And so they roll in at this time. And the reason they do is because they know that the very least there is food for the vulnerable during that time, during this time. So Ruth, she makes plans to go to the fields and we pick up the story in chapter two and verse one. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character or worthy character from Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. Ruth the Moabitess asked Naomi, will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I find favor? Naomi answered her, go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth left and went into the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. Now she so happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. Now right here, you may not catch it, but we have the first glimmer of hope in the book because of the fact that, remember from last week what we talked about, that one of the things that could happen is if your husband died, somebody in his family could marry the widow and could raise up children in his name and could even redeem his property. And so when we hear about Boaz who was from a Lemuel's family, there's kind of a little bit of a hint here that maybe there's something going to happen and his name is Boaz. Now you just say the name Boaz, there's testosterone in that name, just right there, Boaz. I mean, you just hear it, and it means either strength inside or it means swift. One or the other, whichever one it means, this guy doesn't drink decaf, he doesn't wear sweater vests, and he has never had a manicure. I mean, this is a man right here, Boaz, I like it. And not only that, it says that he is a worthy man or a man of noble character. He's a man who seeks justice, in a time of injustice. But Ruth doesn't know he's related to her husband's family that passed away. He doesn't know, she doesn't know that. And so she doesn't, and and even if she did know that, what chance does Ruth have with this man? He's a wealthy, well-to-do, worthy, honorable man. What chance does Ruth have with him? She's a Moabite. It says it again in verse two of chapter two, as if we forgot it, Ruth the Moabitess asked Naomi. She's barren. She doesn't belong, and yet Boaz he looks and he sees her, and it says that he says, "Whose woman is that?" And he's informed, "This is a woman who has cared for Naomi, and she's part of the. She was related. She's married. Was married to somebody that was your relation." And Boaz goes in in verse eight of chapter two. He speaks his first words to her. Verse eight, chapter two. Then Boaz said to Ruth, "Listen, my daughter." Don't go and gather grain in any other field and don't leave this one. See that you stay, see which, stay close to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting and you follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. And she, that is Ruth, fell face down, bowed to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor with you so that you notice me even though I'm a foreigner? And Boaz answered her, everything you've done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and mother and your native land and how you came to a people you didn't know before. May the Lord reward you for what you've done and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. My Lord, she said, if I have found favor with you, For you have comforted and encouraged your servant, though I'm not like one of your female servants. I'm not not one of them. I'm from Moab. Then at mealtime, Boaz told her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine or vinegar sauce. So she sat beside the harvesters and he offered her roasted grain. She ate and was satisfied and had some left over. When she got up to gather grain, Boaz ordered his young men, let her even gather grain among the bundles. Don't humiliate her. Pull out some stalks from the bundles for her and leave them there for her to gather. Do not rebuke her. So his first words to her are, listen, my daughter, don't glean in any field but mine. This is a terrible pickup line. I mean, it's honestly, this is awful right here. You'd be thinking in the Old Testament, they'd be using something like, uh, I was reading numbers last night and I realized I don't have yours or something like that. Uh, in, the, in the earlier service, there was a guy who pulled something. I'm pretty sure he was writing that line down. Don't, it's not a good one. But, but you'd be thinking they would use something like that, but it works. Ruth falls to the ground and says, why have I found such grace or favor in your eyes to work in your fields? And you got to wonder, what is the deal with Boaz's fields? Why are they wanting to work in the fields of Boaz? Well, we get a hint of it in Ruth chapter 2 and verse 22. What it says in Ruth 2.22 is Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, my daughter, it's good that you're working with his female servants so that nothing will happen to you or could even be read as no one will assault you in another field. Got to remember the time of the judges is a violent time and it is not a great time for women. In this very town of Bethlehem, at the end of the book of Judges, we read that a woman is raped and murdered and hacked into 12 pieces in the city of Bethlehem. This is not a time when women are treated with respect. And yet the fields of Boaz are different. The fields of Boaz are different. He has created a culture in which she could feel safe in what she was doing. Here's the impression I get. That at Boaz Incorporated, when there was the new employee's orientation, it was something like this you touch any woman in my fields and no one will find your body because I've got lots of fields and it's the Old Testament and I can do that in the Old Testament. That's what's going to happen. That's what I think Boaz is, the kind of guy that Boaz is. And what we get a hint of is the beauty of God's plan from the very beginning where men are responsible to create cultures where women are treated with respect and are free from the fear of being used or abused. We see that in Genesis, when God created the woman in Genesis chapter 2, 18, where he speaks of her as a suitable helper or an equal partner with Adam. Men and women are different, but there is a distinct and equal value where women are to be treated with respect and honor, and men are responsible to create those cultures. I love what Matthew Henry says about this text in Genesis 2.18. He says, woman was made out of the side of man, not from his head to rule him, nor from his feet to be trampled by him, but from his side to be equal with him, to be protected and to be beloved. Now, here's the great thing. Today we we live in a far more advanced culture and women don't have to worry about the things that they worried about then. As we've passed that, haven't we? No, (laughs) no. All you have to do is look at the hashtags, me too, yo and think about the things that have happened in this very year. Where patterns are ingrained in culture that have enabled abusers and that have silenced victims. And because we believe, as a church, in the sanctity of human sexuality and in the creation of every person in God's image, we should be the leaders in counteracting this. But what has happened instead? In many cases, churches have brushed these things under the carpet. And even today, in our own day, have evangelical leaders who somehow managed to justify if it happens to be somebody that I think will open doors to political power or support their agenda. it should not be. That should not be. Because this isn't a matter of politics or political posturing. This is a matter of whether we will really live as if every person is created in the image of God. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. And Boaz, in a supposedly Primitive culture sees this and practices it. See, the church should be a place like the fields of Boaz, where people could be safe and not silenced. Where we recognize if you see something, you say something. And if we failed at it, that you say so and we don't silence those voices, we hear even what is uncomfortable. It challenges us as men whether we'll watch not only our actions, but our eyes and our lives and our hearts to create cultures where people are safe and not silenced. Boaz sees this woman from the other side of the border who has nothing to say, nothing that she could do at any recourse. And he says, I will protect the vulnerable. I will protect her. She's even surprised by it. You saw in verse 10 of chapter two, me, a foreigner... She says, why should you protect me? But then he goes beyond protection to provide for her. He says, come over here, eat lunch with us. Have lunch with us. Do you realize how shocking this was? For somebody who was an upstanding Israelite to invite somebody such as her over? And she, she can't have looked her best. I mean, remember, gleaning the fields is basically high-class dumpster diving. I mean, that's really what she's doing. She's cleaning up all the stuff, getting all the stuff, the scraps, the scraps. To be able to survive on. He invites her to a meal with him. And he gives her bread. And then he gives her wine to dip it in. And then the man brings out the roasted oats, the roasted grain at this point. Now, once he does the roasted grain, you know, it's serious. I mean, this guy has got not just the chips and the salsa, but he's brought the cheese dip too, okay? So he's like, he's like giving this to her right here. And so he gives her, he says he passes it to her or serves her with the roasted grain. And then he tells his employees, he says, you guys leave some of those sheaves accidentally in the field, just kind of accidentally drop some grain here and there so that she can gather up that grain so that she can gather it. And when it gets to the end of the day, she has an ephah, which is about 40 pounds of grain. She brings it back to Naomi. And Naomi is like, where did you get this? You don't get this much gleaning. And she said, well, the guy's name was Boaz. And Naomi's like, Boaz, Boaz, what, what? This is one of our redeemers. This is a person who could redeem us, who could purchase our land. This is a person who could save us at this point. Now you'd think, If we were writing this, something suddenly would happen right here. But Boaz is like a lot of guys. Look at verse 23, chapter 2. Ruth stayed close to Boaz's female servants, gathered grain till the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Boaz gets as far as the, as the roasted grain and drops the ball, okay? And the summer goes by, he gets that far. Have you ever had that happen, ladies? Where the guy gets, you have, you have like, you've, you've had a great conversation. You had all these, you had a great talk to one another. You thought, this is great. And then he just doesn't do anything to win your heart. He gets you to the roasted grain and he drops it. That's what happens to Ruth here. He got her to the roasted grain and he just dropped it at that point. And so they're waiting around for Boaz to make the next move. And so if that's happened to you, then this week, if the guy is here, tell him, don't stop at the roasted grain. He'll know what you're talking about, okay? He will know what you're talking about when you tell him that. And guys, do what it takes to serve her and win her heart, for goodness sakes. Do what it takes. Serve her and win her heart. That was all bonus right there on the side, right there. But, but Naomi then, she comes up with a plan for getting the relationship past the roasted grain stage, okay? And her plan is in chapter three, beginning in verse one. Let's hear it together. Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you'll be taken care of? Now, isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So wash, put on perfumed oil, wear your best clothes, go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he's lying, go in and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. So Ruth said to her, I will do everything you say. She went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had charged her to do. After Boaz ate, drank, was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley, and she came in secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight, Boaz was startled. You think? He turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. So he asked, "'Who are you?' "'I am Ruth, your servant,' she replied. "'Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer.' Then he said, "'May the Lord bless you, my daughter. "'You have shown more kindness now than before.'" Because you've not pursued the younger men, whether rich or poor. And so you've got this this situation. She comes into the court of this plan. I just want to say as a disclaimer, don't copy this, okay? (laughs) Don't do this. You will go to jail for this. This is breaking and entering and creepy and weird, okay? But it worked for them, all right? It worked for them. It gets a little creepier when you actually start reading some other things and realize that uncovering the feet could have an innuendo in it that was uncovering considerably more than the feet, okay? Let's just say that it could function in some context as the Bronze Age equivalent of Netflix and chill, okay? So that's basically the, the kind of this, this innuendo that is in the text right here. Now, that's not what Naomi is telling Ruth to do. And it's not what ends up happening. But this, this kind of innuendo in the text, this double entendre highlights the tension that she is doing something risky and potentially risque because she is a refugee. She has no recourse. She has no voice in their culture. And Naomi sends her to do something that is risky. And yet, why does she do it? Why does she do this? She's not really trying to send her to seduce him, anything like that. But there's a tension that's introduced by this kind of double entendre in the text. But they know what type of man Boaz is. They know that Boaz is the kind of man that even if he has the power in a situation, even if he has all the leverage, even if he has all the opportunity, Boaz is not the kind of man that will take advantage of her. And they know that. They know he's a man who can be trusted. And so Ruth places herself at the feet of the Redeemer. And she says, cover me with your cloak. Cover me with your wings. You you can redeem me. You can free me from the life that I am in right now. Back in chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz about Ruth had said, you took refuge under the wings of God. And now that same image where she's saying, in essence, yes, I've taken refuge under the wings of your God, and now I want to take refuge with you. It's bold. It's strong. Look at this. The women are taking charge of this, trying to move things forward in the right way. And I just want to say, if your biblical manhood and womanhood doesn't allow for women like this, it may not be as biblical as you thought it was. These women are pretty strong. They're taking charge of things and they're doing and seeking justice and righteousness. But she keeps her covenant with Naomi. And what what he says here is, if all you wanted was a man, you could have chased after one of those men in my field, but you were faithful to the covenant you made with Naomi. And then he says to her in verse 11 of chapter three, do not be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of worthy or noble character. This is him saying, as you wish. That's just what he's saying right there, as you wish. And so he's like, I will do what you say at this point. I will do this, but he calls her a worthy woman. That word worthy is the same word that was used in chapter two to describe Boaz. So they're both worthy. You complete me, worthy before God. And he's saying to her, you are valuable. You have value and worth. Now think of this. This woman has to feel like she has zero value and zero worth. But he says, you are a worthy woman. You're worth something. Now don't release the doves and roll the credits yet. There's a problem in the text. The problem is, we get to chapter four, we find out that there is one relative that is closer relative than Boaz, so he might be able to redeem them too. So Boaz, he is a, he's a crafty guy. He goes to the gate, gathers a council of people, and the guy comes by and he says, hey, come here, come here. So the guy comes over and he says, there is some land that is going up for sale and you're the nearest redeemer. And the man says, this sounds good. I want this. And Boaz describes the land. The guy says, This is really good. I want this. And then Boaz says, There's this one other just little thing there. When you buy it, you also get Naomi and Ruth. And the guy says, no, no thanks, I'll pass, I'll pass. I mean, this would be like somebody coming to you as a real estate agent, say, I've got this great house in the Highlands. It's really, really inexpensive, but it comes with a built-in wife and mother-in-law. If you're okay with that, then, then it's gonna be fine for you. But uh, that's really cheap, really cheap. That's what he's doing. And the guy says, no, no, no I'll just pass on, on this particular proposition here. And so Boaz is freed up to be the husband of Ruth. And the witnesses at the wedding, in verse 11 of chapter 4, hear what they have to say. All the people who were at the city gate, including the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrathah, and your name be well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son that Tamar bore to Judah. Because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. And Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he slept with her, and the Lord granted conception to her. And she gave birth to a son. And The women said to Naomi... Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than, ten, than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap and became his nanny. And the neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Like Rachel and Leah, like Tamar. Do you realize what they're saying when they invoke those names? They're saying, welcome home. Welcome home. You're part of the family now. And we welcome you home. You belong to our family now. And God turns her barrenness into blessing. In fact, it says that Ruth is better to Naomi than seven sons. That would be like the ultimate expression of wealth in their culture. A number of completion, that many sons. And it says that Ruth is more valuable than seven sons. This determined, dark-skinned young woman from the other side of the border is worth more than the greatest wealth that she can imagine for herself of seven sons. And then it gets better God turns her great grandson into a king, King David. And even that isn't the end of the story. You see, the redeeming love of Boaz for Ruth, it pointed forward a thousand years to a distant descendant named Joseph, who became the adoptive father of a child that also was born in Bethlehem. And this child was God in human flesh. He was not treated as one who belonged but he was rejected and abused. He did not belong to this world, but the world belonged to him. And this child came to redeem the world. And the price that he would pay was not the price of a field to redeem a couple of widows. No, the price would be his life to redeem the world, to redeem every man, every woman, every race from every place who will trust in him. And he went to the cross in our place for our failures to live the life that God has called us to live for our rebellion against God. And that's when we realized that the story of Boaz isn't really about Boaz at all, it's really about Jesus. And that's the whole point of Matthew's genealogy is that all these people weren't about the stories that you've been told about them. All those were preparatory for the coming of Jesus. And in this story, we might like to think of ourselves as Boaz. We're the one who's who's rescuing. But in truth, every one of us is Ruth. Broken, not belonging, cast out, and yet loved. And just as God filled the barrenness of Ruth's womb with new life, he filled the barrenness of Jesus' tomb with new life. And brokenness was turned to blessing as Jesus walked out of that tomb alive and well. And when we trust him, he wraps us in his own righteousness. And he sees us always and only wrapped in his righteousness. We belong. What does this mean just for daily life? There's three things I just want you to take home that it really means for us. When you belong to Christ the Redeemer, the names that you've been called cannot determine who you really are. When you trust in Christ the Redeemer, the names you've been called can't determine who you are. When Ruth and Naomi showed up, she said, Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Do you know what though? She's never called Mara in the whole book. Not only that, Ruth. Once she is redeemed, she is no longer called the Moabite ever again. The names that she has they've been called, the names they've called themselves, they are no longer their identity. Once you have been redeemed, the names you've been called do not determine who you are. What are the names that have been pinned on you? What are they? You know them. May be unwanted or addict or useless or never amount to anything. There may be racial epithets that still echo in your heart that you've been called. There's many that we can't even repeat here that many of you have been called. Sometimes it's not the names we've been called, it's the ones we call ourselves, like Mara, bitterness. You call yourself stupid and a failure, too broken for anybody to want. And you're caught in that cycle, you sleep with your own worst enemy on the nights that you sleep alone. You're attacking yourself in that. But here's the beautiful thing. If you are in Christ, God never calls you by those names. Let that sink in. God never calls you by any of those names. He never does. The name that God calls you, if you're in Christ, is beloved son, beloved daughter. In you, I am well pleased. So when you feel like that, then say to yourself, no, no. God calls me his child. And that's the only name that defines who I am, is his child. That's the name that defines you. In Him. Second, when you belong to Christ the Redeemer, you can welcome the outsiders. I love what Boaz does here. Boaz is not concerned with his reputation of inviting this woman to his table. He's not concerned by that. He's not fearful of that. He recognizes that because of what God has done for him, He can be a voice for those that are vulnerable and those that are outsiders. Be that. Do that. That means little practical things. Watch yourself in community group. Sometimes we do prayer requests that are really kind of end up being brag sessions of the things we've done or experienced or that are coming up. Think about the people that are around you and how that can affect them when we're trying to basically do a community group version of social media when you get likes. Think of that. Be secure in Christ in such a way that you think of others and you can be a voice for those that feel like outsiders. Last of all, when you belong to Christ, the Redeemer King, God is turning your brokenness into beauty. A few weeks ago, my third of her children, she right now likes climbing trees a lot. And she was going through, she was like, I got this bruise on the tree in the park that I climbed. I got this one in the dogwood out front. She was going through all the bruises. And she said something that stuck with me. She said, sometimes your bruises, they tell you where you've been. And I think of that. And that's really true when you think about it. Your bruises in your life, they tell you where you've been. They shape who you are. But here's something beautiful that we see in Christ. Our brokenness and our bruises, they may tell us where we've been, but they don't tell us where we're going. They don't decide and determine where we're going. They may tell us where we've been, but they don't have to decide where we're going. Think of these two widows. They stumble into Bethlehem broken and bruised, but their brokenness was not God's final word for them. I love in chapter two where it says, she so happened to set foot in the fields of Boaz at a time when she didn't even know it, God was working to turn her brokenness into beauty. Even when she didn't know it, the brokenness wasn't the final word. And you may, I don't know what's going on in your life, in your heart, You may be grasping at threads right now during the season just to keep from slipping into darkness. You may be in a marriage right now where you have just decided we're going to make it through the holidays and we're calling it quits. You may be in a situation that feels absolutely hopeless. I don't know what it looks like, but I want to encourage you with this. God can turn brokenness into beauty. Your bruises, your brokenness, they decide who you are often, but they don't have to decide who you'll be. And so to seek him and be faithful to him, and I'm not going to promise or even suggest to you that that means that there'll be no waiting before the beauty comes. Sometimes you may wait years, but be faithful. Keep at it. Love him. Seek him. And know that in time, somehow, in his time, in his way, your brokenness will be turned into beauty. And know that in the seasons of waiting. We've been in our church in the past year through a lot of things kind of bruising and breaking in a lot of ways. But I and I were comforted by that to say, you know what? That may be our past, but it's not our future. And I believe with absolute sincerity. That this upcoming year we're getting ready to go into, I believe that will be a time when we will see the brokenness blossom into beauty. I believe that. I look out and I think, wow, think of what could be in the future if that happens. What will that look like in this neighborhood? And I believe it can, and I believe it will in the year that we walk into of God taking the breaking and the bruising and turning it into beauty. God can do that. He does it here. He still does it. He still does. Let's pray.